This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Boonwurrung country and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We recognise First Peoples of Australia as the original storytellers of this country and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. You are listening to a semi-precious podcast hosted by uncut and unpolished sisters Amber and Jade. Welcome to episode three of Semi Precious. Today's focus and what we're going to be talking about is really all about embracing our semi preciousness. We're going to talk about our aha moment, the diagnosis journey, and the impact that that's had on both of us as middle aged women. Welcome, Jade. Hello. Thank you. Welcome to you, sister. To me. Thank you. <laughs> and to everybody listening as well. Jade and I were just reflecting that I know her aha moment, but she doesn't know my aha moment, and that will make more sense in a minute. Right. So here we go. We'll both be learning. Here we go. And I'm just completely off the cuff here trying to recall what my aha moment was. Um, so much preparation. So Amber. much preparation. Yeah. I'm so dedicated to mm-hmm. this podcast. All right. So at a very top level, my son was diagnosed with ADHD quite early on, maybe he was 12, um, he had presented with things from a very early age, but it wasn't really, I didn't really know what ADHD was, aside from what you see on sort of today, tonight with ill-behaved children mm-hmm. having too much food colouring in their diet. That was my... That's kind of the way it was presented, mm-hmm. wasn't it? it if was. you feed your kid too much sugar, they'll be bouncing off the walls and then they'll get some Ritalin and they'll be okay again. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it usually was the cliche of you know, single parents with multiple children with ADHD. Um, Just realised that I did call out Today Tonight. I don't watch Today Tonight, by the way. (laughs) She does. Every week she watches, by the way. Um, (laughs) And so, I mean, he had a a complex upbringing and so he was starting to go through some quite um, severe behavioural challenges and mental health challenges. And I really remember the pivot from – probably grade three for him where he was always very clever and then as he started to get into grade four and grade five where learning became more independent and he needed to plan and structure and really comprehend instruction in I suppose more clearly or in more detail he really started to go from you know performing very well at school and really um understanding the curriculum to not performing at all and really struggling and so that was part of that journey and we it did take a long time to get his diagnosis but that was when me as a parent and this is a, really a story I know that many, many women who are diagnosed with ADHD later in life, um, it's a story that's familiar to them because they do the, of course, do the research for other people and for their children and then throughout that process uh, start to learn a little bit more about themselves and so that was really what happened to me. And even throughout that process, I actually didn't ever see the connection to me. I wasn't, it wasn't a reflective moment, I suppose, because his presentation, his presentation was quite, so yeah, different. it was quite different. And he had a lot of other challenges going on. Mm. Um, I do remember there was a, not a pediatrician, but it's actually a podiatrist, believe it or not. He went up You know their feet people? Yes, I do know their feet people. She went to get some new orthotics and it was an old school podiatrist and we walked into the clinic and 
Ashton, I don't know, was just being Ashton, but as a firstborn, you sort of don't necessarily always realise some of the quirks and behaviours of children not being atypical until someone points them out to you. But we walked in the door and Ashton was, of course, just not sitting still and carrying on like a pork chop. And this guy came out, he would have been late 70s at the time, Ashton would have been about seven, and he said, he goes, ah, he's got ADHD, does he? I said, oh, "Oh, no, no, he doesn't. He said, yes, he does. Yeah, he does. Okay, come on, come on in and started looking at his feet. But obviously he sees a lot of children and, uh, yeah, he was presenting like that. But um, back to the aha moment, I was watching a video at like 3 a.m. on YouTube doing research on ADHD and one popped up that said adult women ADHD and it was an American psychiatrist who specialized in women with ADHD and I watched this 25 minute video and that was when the penny dropped it talked about why women get diagnosed so late how they present why the presentations are quite different to traditionally for boys which is less about the, less about the biology and actually more about um, the way the construct of the way genders are treated so differently mm-hmm. And that was really, yeah, that was the, when I watched that video, it it suddenly a lot of things in my life started to make sense. Just really clicked Mm. for you then. Do you know who that psychiatrist or psychologist is? No, I'd like to know. Was it Sari Solder? Because it sounds like her sort of work. It was someone who did, who does a lot of videos, so they've got quite a strong YouTube presence. All right. We'll find out who it was and then we'll let you know. What about your aha moment? I ah, sort of noted the story. Well. I'm just going to take a sip of my coffee and <laughs> relax for this bit. Okay. So my aha moment, it's almost embarrassing to admit now because it seems so obvious to me now and I was already in the, you know, a mental health professional, but it wasn't until you sent me a link and said, I think I have ADHD and you sent me a link to an adult self-screener I'm like, what? You don't have ADHD. Mm. Which I really didn't. I was really shocked at the thought that you thought you had ADHD. It just didn't even occur to me. I guess I was still with the bouncy, naughty little boy view in my head, which again is really embarrassing as a mental health professional that that's, that we just didn't have the training. Mm. I suppose though, just to that point, there's a lot of confusion in the industry like mental health and ADHD are com- two completely well, different Well, yeah, it's not a mental health. Yeah, it's not a mental health issue. But often you see it bucketed up as the same thing. Well, that's because, you know, it's psychiatrists that are diagnosing it mm. where it's not a mental health disorder. Mm. It is, you know, a brain difference. Um, so when when you sent me that screener, I, of course, jumped on and did that one and then another 50 after that, I'd say, over the next few weeks. Mm -hmm. And it was like a light bulb going off for me. I'm like, wow, I really, I mean, I clearly have it worse than you because you're my sister and we have to compete Mm -hmm. uh, and I win is what I'm saying here. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, it really was a light bulb moment for me and sent me down a rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. That I mean, I'm it's still it's down. interesting, right, because 
presentations, there's a lot of familiarities and, and I know you and I have spoken before about, you know, now we have a, a radar for people with ADHD and we can sense it and mm-hmm. pick it up a mile away. But the presentations can be obviously very different on different people, right? Because it's in, it's quite internal for a lot of women. Wouldn't you say like your, your presentation of it, nobody knows what's happening inside your head, what thoughts are bouncing around in your head, how, how you, you are running like a motor, but in your head. Mm. Sometimes externally, I always like to think of this moment when you and I were living together in Abbotsford and I was lying on the couch (laughs) and she pulled a cushion out from under my head to place it back in its original position because she was just in a flurry around the house constantly making sure it looked perfect. I was lying there using that cushion. Mm. The, The cushion analogy plays out in many, many circumstances throughout my life and I still have an obsession with reordering the cushions, which psychiatrists did say is more of an obsessive-compulsive tendency but also the need to just, yeah, not stop and and to keep rearranging things and keep finding neat sequences. Like when I come over for a casual glass of wine and you decide it's a good time to get the baby wipes out and start wiping fingerprints off Door frames, mm-hmm. yeah, with a glass of bubbles like in one hand. <laughs> I still drink the wine. Yeah, she does drink the wine mm. and she listens to the music and wipes fingerprints off door frames. Yeah. We just need to do more of that at my house so that you can wipe my fingerprints whilst mm. I'm drinking That's wine. less appealing, I'll have to admit. Okay, yeah. You want the house to be clean Yeah. You. Interestingly, when I go into other people's environments, the compulsion to clean does not exist. I do walk into a house though and start cooking something. Mm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So where were we? We've done our kind of aha moment. What other things started to make sense to you about your experience of life after that aha moment? Well, I think there's a quite a chasm between the aha moment and actual diagnoses because, I mean, that might have been four or five years before a diagnosis happened. Wish I could recall the sequence. Does that sound right to you? Four or five years? Mm. Yeah, I think I saw that video when Ashton was still in his teens and I just sort of backbrained it. Ah. So it didn't I didn't really recall that though. No, I don't think I that? shared that. No. So I think I, I had an I did have a a sense that that might be going on, but there were so many other complexities to my life at the time I I just didn't actually even have the headspace to investigate it I didn't have yeah. capacity yeah that makes sense so many people don't have the time and the space so they get these inklings or these oh maybe that makes sense but it's in the too hard basket yeah that life. literally and, and as a parent right you had so much going on just parenting your son yes exactly so it took yeah, a bit of a backseat, I think. I suppose things started to accumulate, and this is very common for women in their 40s, is that they're at the life stage where they have, you know, significant responsibilities, whether that's caring for children, caring for loved ones with disabilities, caring for their parents who are aging, 
Um, they're in, you know, a stage in their career where they've got more responsibilities at work and also that they have um, less time for themselves and I suppose less downtime and the the stacking up of life becomes quite overwhelming. And so at that point, and I have a pretty high threshold for doing like things stacking up. She does. <laughs> she can stack. I can stack like nobody. So stacks. I first saw my GP and I I honestly thought maybe I was starting to suffer like maybe I had early onset dementia. That that was the discussion that I had with my yes. GP. Yeah. Because my ability to remember things, I just felt like I had this fog. I was, I just couldn't, there was, everything was just getting so overwhelming that I'm Mm. like, maybe, maybe I've got early onset dementia because my brain is just not working properly anymore. The GP that I had been seeing for many years, not really on anything too serious, but was actually very dismissive. They're like, well, it's actually just, you know, you've got a, you've got a busy life. You just need to walk on the beach more. You need to just Try and relax. Try and you know just spend a bit more time. I may have said the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> you, you're just too busy, um, which was true. I was too busy, but it wasn't really addressing, I suppose, what was happening underneath. So I sort of ignored him, and then saw a psychologist. And the psychologist really, the intent there was to stress manage. That was what I had started seeing him about, saying. I really feel like I'm at the brink of my capacity to manage everything. Uh, So that's business, that's family, that's managing a a high needs child, that's, you know, approaching my mid-40s. And when you say at the brink, what was happening inside your head? What was it like inside your head at those times? Well, so I was doing a lot of driving because we lived remote to work. And during that drive, I would sometimes think, what if I just veered off the road hit a tree but didn't die, but just enough to get me into a hospital where I could rest. Right. I did read a meme this morning that said I'd love to be the clothes in my dryer so that I could be in a a dark, warm, quiet space and be left alone by my family for a week. Yeah. And then the other thoughts would be what if I, like what does an actual nervous breakdown look like? Because if I had a nervous breakdown and then someone had to take me to a mental health facility and I became an inpatient, surely I would just get like two weeks of quiet where people would bring me food and I just... No, I've been to lots of mental health wards Mm. as a practitioner. Can I just caveat It doesn't look like that. (laughs) It doesn't look like that, no. So Um, I started to fantasise, I suppose, about just clearing the noise out because it was right, so much and that's, noise. That's what I want to know. What is, so there they're kind of externalised. That's what you were thinking about what you were feeling, but what was the feeling, that noise? What was that noise like? Exhausting because it, it became so cluttered in there that I actually mm-hmm. couldn't hold on to a thought uh-huh. or unpack it. You're an ideas person as well. So you've got hard thoughts and lots of ideas. And then the hyper-focus. So with right. my work... I think really what's helped me be successful is that when I have an interest in something, I can hyper-focus. And so that actually didn't stop. But what it meant was it caused greater exhaustion because all the other things were still happening. And all it meant was like when I do hyper-focus still, 
I then, you know, I get tired afterwards because I've put, you know, 500% in when, you know, an, a non-neurodiverse person would even their 100% is a fifth of what I'm applying in terms of energy. Mm, so you're burning yourself out with your hyper-focus. Yep. So then, yeah. yeah, everything became overwhelming. And then so I saw the psychologist probably for two years but I think I was almost a bit embarrassed to just ask him directly. And a lot of the focus of our sessions became my stress management, which to be fair to him was what I asked him for support on. Mm. But I was, I think, hoping he might pick up on, pick up on something right. and he just didn't. And then in the end I did ask him explicitly and he, he did treat a lot of adults with ADHD and he said, no, I don't think, I'm not seeing any indications that that would be. That embarrassment, is that part of that that stigma, do you think, about the, the naughty little boy? Like is this, what is it? What was the embarrassment for you there? I think the embarrassment was actually probably just focusing on me because a lot of the stress was focusing on external factors. So oh, okay. my son, our relationship, his health, so the business, sorry, a vulnerability about it actually being about me, something yeah, about yes. you. So it was obviously when we had our sessions, it was about how I'm coping, but how I'm coping based on all the other the externals that are kind of outside of your control and coming yes, at you, but not than... actually focusing. Because every time he wanted to bring a session back to say childhood, it was I just blocked it. I Run just a said, mile. look, I don't have the capacity. I'm just. There's too much. I don't have room for that. Yeah. Okay. And that is still the case, really. Yeah. Okay. We'll have to unpack mm, that here. We can have some thing. live therapy sessions, sister. <laughs> so talk. Let's talk about your diagnosis journey, which I feel like was just piggybacking off my um, actual diagnosis journey. Yeah. I I just jumped on board. Mm. Well, let's actually let's just acknowledge that being diagnosed as an adult, especially at the moment in Australia and post-COVID, and I know in other countries actually listening to podcasts from other countries with people with ADHD, it's actually even more complex if you're in the NHS system in the UK, mm. for example. Mm -hmm. People wait up to two years to get yeah. in to see someone. Um, so I think at one point my experience was I had called about 30 to 40 psychologists mm -hmm. At the beginning, I started researching those that I felt were either specialists in adult women or where their profile resonated. And in the end, I'm like, I actually just don't even care. Just anyone will do. Mm -hmm. And that's when I found the on, an online service basically that did everything online. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, actually I've done enough research as long as I have you know, a functioning practitioner who, who knows how to do a proper diagnosis, then I'm actually just really. That's good enough. That's good enough for me. Yeah. It just needs to be good enough. Yeah. And I, and I remember, well, I, I'm not somebody who, I, I go down rabbit holes of research, but I get very tangled in them and then I give up it becomes very overwhelming. I have too many options and I get paralyzed. So I tend to piggyback off somebody's bought a car. You've done all the research. Which car should I get? 
somebody's been on holidays. You've done the research. Which way should I go? I'm either impulsive or I piggyback on somebody else's. And and I had a friend that had recently been diagnosed and and she suggested I contact her psychiatrist. So I put the referral in and they held my referral for 10 weeks of me going back and forth and back and forth in this triage process. And then they finally said, okay, at the end of this week, we'll give you your appointment date. Didn't hear anything, called them back. Oh, sorry, that practitioner's books are closed. And this is a too common story. So my referral's going nowhere for all this time. And I felt so defeated. You know, I I just thought I'm just going to give up. I actually messaged her, said I was going to give up, called you, said I was going to give up. And then you had at the same time, I think, found that online service and put your referral in. And then I started the process um, a bit after you. But then I think we ended up having... It's only a few weeks apart. But I think I ended up getting my appointment, yeah, only a week after you because I had a cancellation and and it was it was easier. Yeah, I mean, still, for, you know, given that ADHD is all about struggles with executive functioning, gosh, they don't make the process easy. You constantly have to be back there on top of it, filling out paperwork, using your memory, all of these things that are a bit of a struggle anyway. But I felt like it was a a good service. It was a really robust, I mean, the administration was rubbish. I did Mm -hmm. give them some constructive feedback about that. But the practitioners themselves, so you and I saw the same practitioner, Mm -hmm. and then I also saw a GP through that service for the referral because Mm -hmm. I didn't want to go back to the dickhead GP that I had previously. Hope he's not listening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that, yeah, really robust questioning, you know, the mm. the process was I've, I've since referred that process on to mm. other people I that to. I know that potentially have ADHD. And, of course, as an adult it's much more complex because it relies on the input from either parents, loved ones. I mean there were multiple people. So I think mm. you filled out my assessment, my husband filled out, the assessment and then I filled out the assessment so that there were hmm. multiple streams. but And lots of narratives from, you know, they want lots of examples and narratives from early childhood, mm. don't they? So a lot of recalling of, you know, report cards and examples of um, behaviours and traits and experiences from mm. early childhood. Which is quite a trigger in itself, isn't it? Because you sort of reflect back and say, oh, Actually, that makes more sense now than it did at the time. Amber, that's really to one of the biggest things that I experienced was this this overwhelming sense of everything in my past being viewed through a different lens now. Mm. I remember listening to a podcast, um, I think it was just the the afternoon before I got my diagnosis, so I had my appointment coming, so I was pretty primed to be emotional having done all of the the forms and surveys and I was walking along the beach listening to this podcast it it was the account of who was it you sent me the link Clementine Ford yes I think it was Clementine Ford on another podcast on ADHD AF and I was listening to her experience and just 
crying, just tears or just falling as all of my past experiences made sense. All of the the versions of the the little me and the teenage me and the young adult me really started to click into place. And then also an imposter syndrome coming up at the same time going or or scared, what if he says no? What if he what if the the psychiatrist says, "Nah, you don't really fit." Yeah, I did have that. I did have that thought also because I'd already been told by someone I was seeing for mm-hmm. over 12 months. Um, which just goes to show, and there's definitely like multiple episodes we could do about talking about this, but we're self-advocating people, right? And mm-hmm. I really feel for all the people who don't have the self-advocating skills because for us the process has been horrendous and even working in mental health as you do and mm. me as a parent with a, a child with mental health challenges, it's such a complex process anyway. Even if you can advocate for yourself, you're still it's very frustrating. So imagine all the people who don't have those skills to mm. just continue to push back and challenge the, you know, status quo. If I have a psychologist who, you know, apparently specialises in this and he's saying no to me, I could have just quite easily have given up and said, oh, okay, well, he knows best, mm. so that's it. And and women are maskers as well. We mm. need, they need to be able to look beyond that. Yeah, you've got to see the, the signs. So what has, you know, having a diagnosis meant to you? How has it changed your life? I think... I think for me it's about being kinder to myself and also allowing me to have conversations with my husband around just acknowledging that something might not be my strong point. And so being open to him saying you're cramming too much in or you're trying to do too much or you really need to take a break because that's not my natural state is I'm really poor with time management in terms of not necessarily that I'm always running late, but that I think I can do more in a time frame than I actually can. So I'll cram in five things in a day that other people might just try and bite off two things. That time perception is such a bizarre concept that I hear over and over again. Um, I remember listening to somebody say, I believe somehow that it takes me 15 minutes to get ready and 15 minutes to get to anyway, wherever I'm going. I think that was me, Friedman, that said that. Like just it's, it's and, uh, yeah, 15 I think it minutes was to actually. anywhere. And I'm like, yeah, actually. It's that's... peak hour traffic. You've got to get across uh, Sydney Harbour Bridge mm-hmm. and find a park. and But it's just 15 minutes. It's just 15 minutes. Just 15 minutes yeah. to get ready and as well, like, you know, me to get out the door. I'm like, no, actually, I have to feed the chickens and, you know. All of the different things. So changing your expectations and and what I'm hearing is you're letting people help you. Yeah. Yeah, you're being vulnerable in those times and saying. A bit more. I've still got a way to go on that front, but mm-hmm. I'm being more open to it's not, I can't, it's not something I can control. It's not an excuse, but it is a reason. Yeah. And I can start to work on ways to support myself. And manage it. Yeah. Anything else that has felt big from being diagnosed? I think just the reflection, as you mentioned before, about 
difficult periods in life, like teenage years, for example, and some of the challenges I had then, just looking back now going, I can see why that behaviour, you know, why it came out in, I don't know, like, you know, getting suspended all the time at school or um, and I got bored a lot at school. So I just, I think I just found A, listening to detail instruction, I probably just couldn't follow the, mm-hmm. it's like now reading instructions on, if I have to read instructions on playing a board game, I, I just won't play. If you explain to me and show me how to do it, I will remember and I can follow it. But if I have to read a sequence of information, <laughs> It I just, just say, let's happen. play. I, I just let's just play up. and figure it out. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just completely give up. And so it's the same with anything, building anything, creating anything. I have to observe. And so you imagine at school, it, that's not how things are taught, really. No. We're, we're taught by you, you know, read a textbook. I mean, even just thinking about a textbook just gives shudders. It's just yeah. pages and pages of ill formatted typography <laughs> with, you know, yeah. Not very um, evident instructions in terms of, you know, bold headings and steps and I need yeah. lots of colour and um, differences in how the information is presented. So if it's a key message, I need that key message to be in bold, large and in colour yeah. for me to then process the rest of the information. It needs to be sparkly and pretty and yeah. shiny. and So, you know, the reflection was then I can see why, I I had to work so hard in year 11 and 12 to get, you know, I did well, mm. but I really had to, like I put a lot of pressure on myself to deliver that result. And in hindsight, I probably could have done even better had I, you know, had, you know, proper training or if the learning structure had it been different. So in that I could have done better, I've heard that story a lot, n- not from you, but you know, from people, Patients, that, you yeah. know, clients and such. But there's that grief in there. Is it grief for you in the what could have been, the what ifs, mm. had only I known, had only I been supported and had the resource, resources and how yeah. things would have been different? Definitely. What about you? Yeah, loads. I mean, I was a high school dropout. I, I really kind of disengaged from school. I'm not sure I actually ever really... Engaged, engaged in school with school mm-hmm. I was either sick or pretending to be sick or in high school just you know wagging and wagging. nothing really caught a term I haven't heard wagging wagging school really the only things that caught my attention that I enjoyed were English I love stories mm. loved creating stories and uh, drama because you know I liked playing characters you like drama. Was, I like yeah. drama I like drama. Rather, baby of a family of five. So yeah, a bit of drama. So definitely there's there's grief. There's grief of the way I treated myself and the, you know, the really reckless behaviour all through my teens. There was not a lot of regard for um, life or value of life. And then I, I think there's grief for all aspects of my life, for my childhood, for my education, for my employment for it taking so long to finally get to something I fell in love with yeah I mean I am I feel also very grateful that I found something that I was so passionate about being the mental health degree that Mm. I 
was able to push through all of my struggles, but I would have to go away for weekends at a time to study. And if I didn't get a a high distinction, it wasn't good enough, but I, I couldn't focus at, at home. I had to go away and kind of remember I used to go and stay at your studio Mm. or at the place at Phillip Island for the weekend so I could kind of make sense of the chaos I was creating. But had I known and been supported, could I, you know, would I have gone down a different route? Yeah, exactly. Where would my career be now and what relationships would I, you know, have had and friendships and so on and so forth? Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Semi-precious moment. We said that we would bring them up every episode. Of course, every episode I say I'm going to take notes of my semi-precious moment and then I forget. And then when you ask me, I say, can you remember what semi-precious moment I said I had? Mm-hmm. She even s- takes notes and sends them to me. How do you lose them? I don't know. Don't mm-hmm. rely on me. No. Lord. Okay, so my semi-precious moment recently was I went overseas. I went to Japan and While I was in Japan, I was talking to a friend of mine who was over there who also has ADHD and takes medication. And she said, I should have mentioned this before you left, but I didn't want to freak you out in case you had already exited. But it's actually illegal in Japan to carry uh, Vyvanse, which is the medication that I take. Um, Even with a letter from the doctor, you can't carry Vyvanse. There are other medications that you can carry, but Vyvanse is not one of them. So... For anyone who's been to Japan, that you know, customs, everything's very intense and protocol yeah. following. And so then realizing that not only I'd been carrying around a bag in my backpack through customs, through Hong Kong airport and in Hong Kong, they are everywhere that you go is an anti-drug message. So you can't have any cannabis oil. You can't have anything that's got any you're just loaded. minor you're just... drug related. So I've been through all of these airports and been wandering around day after day with this uh, Vyvanse rattling around in my backpack. So yeah. then I'm like, said to right. my, sent that message to my husband. He's like, didn't you look it up? But who would look it up? No, I didn't. No. Didn't ever think about just it. Just take it. Didn't mm. ever think about it. So then, so then you had to get rid of it or I did. So then I sort of went, okay, well, how many days? So I basically spent the back end of my trip with no medication. And, and what did you have to, what was the first event you had to kind of conquer with executive functioning offline? Was that the bullet train? Yeah, the bullet train. Oh, the bullet train with that ticket you showed me oh, with just yeah. numbers and yep. characters. and. So I turn up firstly the night before I was filled with self-loathing because I, I knew what day I was getting the bullet train. I could have booked the bullet train online, but they run every 20 minutes. I didn't think about it. So the night before in a slight panic, I'm like, I should look up how early I need to get to the station for the bullet train. And then I did. And every blog I read was like during peak season and cherry blossoms is peak season. That's when I was there. It only runs for two weeks a year. So you can't get any more niche and peak than that. Mm-hmm. It recommends pre-booking because it's very hard to get on the train. So then all night I'm panicking. So I wake up at five, I get up, I pack my bag, I get ready to go and I get to the station by 7am. I get to the window. Thankfully, there's not many people there. And of course, you know, there's, I get my ticket. There was a bit of confusion. The person has booked me on a train that leaves in seven minutes. And for any of you who have travelled to, you know, you're at a chaotic 
terminal with a million gates, everything in Japanese. The only thing that's there are English uh, numerals. So if I showed you a photo of this ticket, everything was in Japanese. There were 500 numbers and he's trying to explain to me that, you know, go left and then look for this gate. It and hurt my brain to look at this ticket. Honestly, like the panic that <laughs> I was feeling. I had no time to get a drink, a coffee, nothing. I was just racing around like a lunatic. I went through three gates that were wrong. My train was leaving in three minutes. And as I soon discovered with the bullet trains, they turn up in under 60 seconds, they're off again. Oh, they're out of there. standing at your exact ticketed mini gate, one to 30 doors. And you've got to be waiting at the door that takes you to your train. So, But the door yeah. number could have been any of the 50 numbers on any your ticket. Any of the ticket. 50 numbers. So I'm like, is that a platform <laughs> number? Is that a door number? Is that like a, yeah, uh, it was. It and then I, so I had all of this like adrenaline running through my system and then I just, yeah, passed out. And you managed to wake up before you. I managed to wake up literally like six minutes before I had to get off and then you I had, had to, to pretty scramble. much be thrown out. And in all my train. optimism, I had my laptop. I'm like, I'm going to do some work. I'm going to like had my notebook. I'm like going to get through all of this stuff. And no, I did not because I was heavily fatigued. That sounds fun. Yeah. What was your semi-precious um, moment? It seems just looking up at the board where we've written we've our stuff. notes, yeah. Uh, Mine just seems a little insignificant in comparison. It I is a bit lame. But it look, is. I think we're running over time anyway. So it is lame. Look, it I knew snappy. this would be a long one. Um, basically, I shaved my right leg twice and my left leg not at all. So what I, I'm really keen to understand here, what was the distraction between stopping the first leg and then the natural progression moving on to the other leg. I don't I don't know how and I've actually done it again since then. Mm. So I haven't learned the lesson. And at what I, point, you know when you're shaving anything, what point didn't you notice there was no further hair coming onto the razor? No, I don't even know if it's the hair on the razor because I'm not like wild and woolly legged. Like no, it's not you do have you know, sparse legs. For someone with dark dark hair. hair. Yeah, I'm not, sparse. I'm not overly hairy, just no. so in case anybody's wondering. I'm not a really hairy, hairy person. I, I don't know because you also run your hand along your leg mm. as you're shaving and I was doing that and just shaved one leg twice and kind of got out and started to dry and then noticed the sparse that it, and I had to get leg. back in again. So really a bit lame. Sorry that that was my semi-precious moment for this week in comparison to carrying illegal drugs and could have been arrested. Could have been arrested. But I did want to go back to the ADHD just for a minute because I don't know if you asked me what the biggest change for me was. No, I think I just went just, straight over it with my own story. Yeah, yeah, you don't, don't care that much. It's fine. Hey, um, Jade. Yeah. What's been the biggest impact for you? Oh, wow. Well, I feel Oops. like we haven't unpacked that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for asking. I just, without going yeah, on. look, it's something I haven't even thought about or no, considered. We've only got 15 um, bullet points up there. 15 bullet <laughs> yeah. uh, All right. Well, I won't read the 15 bullet points because I think we'll probably need some more episodes. And again, I haven't given this any thought at no. all. For me, I really felt like I found my people, mm. that I felt, I think, very different and alone, even when surrounded by people for a very, very long time, always felt quite lonely. And I think it's because I, I felt like I was different. Uh, well, I always felt like I was, you know, stupid and ditzy and clumsy. And Do you know what, though? Here's something interesting just to bring it back to me for a second. you about to say I am second. stupid and ditzy? No. No, okay. But I have always felt <laughs> slightly the opposite in a sense that 
I've always found other people to be quite daft because non-neurodiverse people think quite slowly. And so I've often sat in a room going, oh, my God, this is so boring. (laughs) Like (laughs) Just get to the point. Let me just do it for you. Like I've already got that point 10 minutes ago and we're still talking. It's funny. I've never felt slow. I've just felt messy. Mm -hmm. Like I couldn't quite get things finished or organized or completed And obviously with the kind of dyslexia as well, you know, there's the spelling and writing that Mm. looks like a shit show. Like a four-year-old's written it. Yeah. And I would say that to my clients. I'm like, I just want to show you this. Just please excuse the writing that looks like a dyslexic five-year-old because it kind of is. Mm. So I am much kinder to myself. You know, I have been working on that even prior to the diagnosis, you know, just kind of accepting who I am, but, but finding and listening to these podcasts that go, oh, there are other people that think and feel and do similar to me. One of the other, you know, big changes is I'm also on medication, a different medication. And, you know, earlier when you were saying you thought you had dementia, Mm. well, I went to my doctor a couple of years ago and thought maybe I had MS, like mm, our mum, like yeah. because I have cognitive aphasia, especially mm. in the morning and evenings where I can't find the word for things yes. at all. And I would trip and stumble and I'd be saying to the kids, oh, kids, can you can you pass me can you get the, the pine fish? tree out of right. the fridge? Yeah. And nobody would know what I was talking about. And it was kind of scary. It was kind of scary for my kids and my husband and myself and I got the referral to the neurologist and then I don't know I think I lost it I don't know what I did anyway but since taking the medication I don't find I don't struggle for words I find the word and I say it so that that is miraculous I still do in the evening when the medication's worn off oh yeah in the evening yeah all bets are off in the evening it's It's fine kids go to bed mum can't talk yeah the the other major thing is that it really created or defined a new purpose for me and I remember kind of talking to you about this new purpose of working in the neurodiverse space within you know my field and you said to me I hope it's poignant I can't remember what did I say to you you said awaken ADHD oh yeah I did yeah and I went yes and I instantly built a website called awaken ADHD branding that's genius business proposition yeah uh and then you know did some ADHD kind of postgraduate trainings and some coaching training and and then I recently started an Awaken ADHD podcast. So if plug. you'd plug, plug, if you would like to listen to other people's stories of when they awaken to their ADHD, do you know how hard it was for me to actually figure out how to edit my own podcast? Yeah. But you did it. I did. Well, I often have to say to Jay, just put your big girl pants on. I know. Okay, I got my big girl she pants sometimes on. Sometimes gets a bit defeated. I'm like, I come do. on, you can do it. Oh, it's very hard. Technology is not my thing. I know, but it's like anything. The more fear you have, just like when you're around a horse and they smell that fear, they know. Are, are you saying my computer same. smells? Yeah. My fear. yeah, I am. <laughs> it does. Yeah. I need a new laptop anyway. Alrighty. So next, next episode. episode Aging. Aging. We're getting old. So existential crisis, denial. Botox, cranes. Oh, I still don't have any Botox. Beauty. Yeah, all of that stuff. All of that stuff. So if you want to listen to more of our ramblings, please follow and subscribe on your favourite potty platform of choice. Chad, I'd really prefer you didn't <laughs> say potty. find it offensive. <laughs> you don't like abbreviations. No. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Embrace your uncut and unpolished selves. Bye. Bye.
This podcast represents the personal opinions of Amber and Jade. No content should be taken as advice or recommendations.